Easter and really Holy Week, the whole week leading up to it, has this power where it causes us to think and it causes us to reflect. I think that happens because beneath all of the cultural festivities and all of the things that are happening around the city and maybe with your family and your friends, you know that there's a story behind Easter. And there's a story that has changed the world. That has changed people's lives, it has changed cities, it has changed communities, and it has a story that is believed and has been held for 2,000 years or so. A story that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, that he lived a life that you and me couldn't because he was perfect, and then he sacrificed his life for our sake so that our sins might be paid for, and he was put in the ground, and three days later, when people came to the tomb, he was gone. Not only was he gone from the tomb, but he then appeared to people, to the apostles and to the disciples and to over 500 other people. That's the story. And I think what happens that most of us in this room have thought this before. That sounds like a myth. It's really hard to believe in, right? That Jesus Christ came back from the dead. It sounds like the Easter bunny, right? The Easter bunny is this little bunny that goes around and for some reason likes to give children eggs with candy inside if your parents are nice. If not, then it has nothing inside, right? I, I remember growing up Easter. We, I grew up going to church. My parents took me to church, I think, every single Easter of my entire life. And I understood that Easter was about Jesus coming forth from the grave alive. But for me, Easter was about candy, because most children were consumed with candy the majority of the time, specifically Reese's, because Reese's is factually the best candy in the world. It is true. You Google it, you will find it. It's true. And the best candy that Reese's makes, they make during Easter. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's those little eggs that have extra peanut butter in them, and they change the chocolate. I don't know what they do, but it's unbelievable. It's only a certain period of time, and they make it. And so my Easter was about accumulating and eating and digesting as many of these Reese's eggs as humanly possible. And I also like Cadbury eggs. I don't know why so many people like Cadbury eggs. What is the flavor? I don't know. Vanilla? Maybe. But we eat it, right? So Easter for me was about candy. It was about like bright colors and an egg hunt. Because for some reason, this bunny that I was told, you know, was, you know, a real bunny that came and, you know, hid eggs all around the backyard, he likes to give plastic eggs. I knew he didn't give the real ones because we made those and then we painted them, right? He gives plastic eggs. And so I remember thinking as a child, like, where does the Easter bunny live? Is he friends with Santa or is he friends with Sasquatch? You know, does he know the tooth fairy? Like, are they all in on this together trying to, like, care for children, and why does he give these plastic eggs? And where does he get so many eggs? I mean, it's a lot of eggs that he distributes. And then maybe the most perplexing question of all, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? Right? I, I go to church and Jesus is celebrated as being resurrected. And then I go and I hunt for eggs given by some creepy bunny. Yeah, I'm trying to figure this out. And then when I got older, they said, well, let me tell you, Carter, why. You know, you weren't able to understand as a child. You know, the, the egg symbolizes new life. And Jesus, you know, coming forth from the grave, new life, eggs, new life. I'm like, that's really deep for a child. You know, we're not thinking about that. We're thinking about candy and what's inside of it. 
But I remember as I was growing up, you know, it, it was easy for me to understand very quickly that the Easter Bunny was a myth, right? Saying I believed way too long. But the Easter Bunny, I, I said, this makes no sense, right? And they all look different every place you go to take a picture with the Easter Bunny. You know, this, there's something fishy. But the Easter Bunny stayed with me actually all the way till college uh, when I was in college. I didn't still believe in the Easter Bunny in college, okay? Um, but I... I couldn't shake the Easter Bunny. I was convinced by some friends for this interview uh, that we were doing on the campus at Florida State to dress up like an Easter Bunny. And that's a horrible decision because people in Easter Bunny suits are terrifying. And so, you know, you can lose your friends if you get in the Easter Bunny suit. But I realized, right, that the Easter Bunny is a myth. It's not a real thing. And I think that culturally, we've kind of uh, given up a little bit on the Easter Bunny. I've just realized this this year. Here's why. We still do the Easter Bunny picture thing, but now we charge $10 and we take a picture so we can put it on Instagram so we can put our screaming child who's living a nightmare right before our eyes and know and say, isn't this cute? And he's just like screaming and crying because the mask. So we still do that, but we don't do egg hunts. Maybe I'm misremembering. When I was a child, like the eggs were hidden. You know, you had to hunt for them. Here's an egg hunt now. Build a pen, dump eggs in the middle, line the children around the outside, blow an air horn so they all run at the middle. It is survival of the fittest. It is just watch. Can my child throw other children on the ground and get as many eggs as possible? This is what it's become, right? We've given up a little bit on the Easter bunny, but Easter for us, I think in general, is a happy time. It's beautiful weather in Miami. There's some plants and things that are sprouting, and it's, it's just this incredible time to be here in the city. If, if you maybe celebrate with friends or family, some, often you would grill lamb, right, which is, I think, a very underappreciated meat, but we eat it a lot during Easter. If you fasted of something during Lent, then on Easter you get to enjoy that thing again, so it's exciting. Or you can take your children to an egg hunt and see if your child can make it, you know, if they can cut it by throwing other children out of the way. It's, it's generally a happy time, but it's a time of reflection, right? Because underneath all of that is this question, is this story actually true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And see, we're closing our series tonight uh, that we've been going through the last seven weeks called Love War. That's in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's written to these men and women, these believers in Corinth. And this city is very similar to our city. This city is a large city. It is an economic powerhouse. People from all over the world, different cultures, different faiths, different belief systems. They've all merged into the city and people come through it all the time on trade routes. And so this city is really a true melting pot. It's actually regarded as the Mecca of sexuality in the known world. Right? So this sounds a lot like Miami. And so they have this, all these temptations that are taking place in the life of this church. And what we've seen over the course of this series is that the believers here have fallen into this trap. They've fallen into believing that they, because of their pride, can formulate and create their own spirituality. So they're looking at things and they're like, ah, I don't really like that. That seems like a myth. That doesn't seem true. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem good for me. And so they're, they're creating their own spirituality that they're labeling as true spirituality. And so Paul writes to them, right? There's two different groups in this church. There's a lot, probably even more, but two main groups because the church is divided. 
They're suing each other. They're fighting with each other. It's gotten so bad that there is actually a, a, a family in the church where the son is sleeping with his father's wife and nobody cares. This church is a mess. And one side of the, of the church says, listen, here's what true spirituality is. You can do whatever you want with your body. You can engage your passions however you, de- you determine and however you desire. But as long as you do some religious things, and as long as you, you work and strive to be good as best as you can, then, then you're okay. And then there's another side of the church that says, no, 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 that's not how it works. You need to ascend different levels of spirituality by receiving different gifts from God. So if you're really obedient, if you're really good, if you're really religious, and if you kind of remove all of these things from your life, then you're going to get some special gifts. And then you can look down on other people in your self-righteousness because you're more important to God because you have more significant gifts. And Paul writes to them and he says, that is neither one of those positions are true. And as he's closing his letter tonight in 1 Corinthians 15, he says to them that I want you to understand that you have forsaken and you have left what I originally talked to you about, what I've received, what you believed, you have thrown it away and you have said, I'll I'll take a little bit of this and I'll take a little bit of that and I'll kind of create my own spirituality. And that's why he says in verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. And so he's wanting to root them. He's saying, listen, there's all other kinds of conversations that we can have. But what you need to understand is that this, what I'm about to tell you, is the most important aspect of Christianity. This is the backbone. This is the foundation. And there is no deviation. You're not allowed to to change things here. Either you believe this or you do not believe this. And you need to kind of wrestle with that. So he says, Here's what I've delivered to you of first importance, which I've also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. You see, that's one thing that we know for sure. We know for sure that Christ died. Almost every single biblical scholar, Christian and non-Christian, says that Jesus Christ was a real person, a real human, who was in fact killed by the Romans on a cross. That is 95, 99% backed up by any scholar that you could talk to in in literature that you could read. But the next part is where we have some questions, right? We know he died, but Paul is saying he didn't just die. He died for our sins. See, what the church believes and what Paul is trying to remind them is that it's not just that Christ died. It's that he died for your sins, meaning he substituted his life for theirs. And they would have understood this, you know, because they're, they've been around Jewish culture. Many of them were Jews. Some of them were non-Jews. They were Gentiles. But they understood what the prevailing under, uh, belief system was in Judaism, which is this, that you have God who is perfect and holy, and you have us who are not. We are imperfect. We are failed. We are broken. We are sinful. And perfection and imperfection do not mix. And so what has to take place is a substitution and an atonement for your sins. And so what happened was the Jewish people would make sacrifices. They would sacrifice doves and they'd sacrifice goats and lambs and bulls. They would sacrifice different things and shed the blood of those animals to make atonement, to 
to purchase their forgiveness because what they knew was that their sin deserved death. It deserved bloodshed. So in order to be in a relationship and reconciled to God, they had to sacrifice and substitute an animal in their place to make atonement for their sins. And then once a year, there's a, a day called the Day of Atonement where they take a bull and they'd kill a bull and they'd take two goats, they'd kill one goat, and then the other goat, they would symbolically put all the sins of the people on that goat and they would send the goat out to the wilderness. This is where you get the understanding of a scapegoat. So they would have a scapegoat, right? That would take away their sins. And so Paul is saying to the church, listen, it's not just that Jesus died. It's that what Jesus claimed is that he is the fulfillment of everything that was taking place throughout the entirety of the people of God. That perfect and imperfect do not mix. And so what did God do? He sent his only son to be the atoning sacrifice and substitution for the sins of those that would believe and trust in him. That in order for you to be in relationship with God, your sins have to be paid for, and Christ is the last sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice because he's God's son. He's God in the flesh. And you hear this, and you think about this, and, and you, you marvel at it. It's like, wow, that is, that's beautiful that Christ was the scapegoat for me. My sins were placed upon him, and he was sacrificed as a substitution, so I'm not sacrificed. And my sins have been purchased because he shed his blood for me. It's what we celebrate on Good Friday. And it's a powerful and beautiful thing to, to consider that and to process that. Because one thing that we know for sure also is that we're sinful, that we're broken, that we're failed. All you have to do is get in your car and go north on I-95 between 3 and 7 p.m. And you know that you're sinful. Or get in an Uber pool, and as you're going in the Uber pool, the Uber driver picks somebody up that is nowhere near where you're going, and then you go pick them up, and for some reason, you, they drop them off first. And you're like, wait, wait this is not happening. <laughs> it's really easy to figure out that you're sinful, right? That you're broken. It's not very hard. But... What happens after the cross? Because the cross sounds wonderful, that, that Jesus Christ paid for our sins, that he was an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he was a scapegoat for us, and so that now we can be reconciled with God and we can be in relationship with him because of Jesus' sacrifice. It's beautiful, it's powerful. But what happens on Easter is where your eyebrows kind of raise a little bit, right? Because people die, but people don't come back from the dead. They don't. They don't come back from the dead. And so you begin to think about this and you begin to process this. And maybe you walked in here thinking, you know, this is probably a myth. Um, there's aspects of it. And the reason is, is because it, it just doesn't happen. People make bold claims all the time and people die. but People don't come back from the dead. And so you fall into the trap that the Corinthians fell into, right? Where you say, okay, I'm going to take some of the stuff that I like and then other stuff that's more comfortable that I can kind of reason through and, and really believe because Jesus rising from the dead, I mean, that, that's, that doesn't happen. And that's attractive. And I understand that, right? I've, I've worked through that myself. It's attractive to believe that because it's much easier to be your own God than to surrender to God. Much easier 
to create your own religion and to create your own spirituality than to submit to who God truly is. And Paul is saying to the church in Corinth and to us, you need to remember what the Christian gospel or the good news, the message is, what the backbone of your faith is. This is what you believe, that Christ died for your sins. In verse 4, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And what he's saying is, if you don't believe me, then you can go ask all these other people that saw Jesus Christ physically resurrected, who many of them are still alive. You can go ask them. But he says some of them have fallen asleep, meaning some of them have died. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. He's saying it's not just that Christ died. It's that he died for your sins as a substitutionary atonement, as a sacrifice for you. And then he was buried. And on the third day, he actually physically came forth from the grave and he appeared to the apostles and to over 500 other people and many others. And you can go ask some of them. It's not a figment of my imagination. This is reality. This is true. And you have forgotten that because it sounds a lot like a myth to you. And you're having a hard time working through it. And see, this, this is the moment, right, where when you come to face what Christianity holds and believes and what we as a church and many of us in this room believe, it's, it's hard. But the church has held this position for some 2,000 years, and so you begin to think some different things, maybe. These are things that I work through, right? Maybe what happened was there was like a mass hallucination. That could have been the case. Right? So the disciples and then some of these other people, they, they had a mass hallucination and they, they saw what they, they wanted to be the case. They wanted to see Jesus Christ risen from the dead because he was claiming that that was going to happen. And they knew that if Jesus died and he didn't rise, then the movement would be over. It would be crushed. Whenever the leader of a movement dies, it's done, it's over. And so they, they hallucinated. They believed something that wasn't true, but... They wanted it to be true. Well, see, the problem with that is that then you have the most brilliant lunatics in the entire world. Because the New Testament is really the greatest piece of literature, really the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But it's the greatest piece of literature, whether or not you believe it. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. So you have brilliant lunatics who wrote this and were under mass hallucination. But also the other problem is not only that they would have had to been brilliant, but most people recognize crazy, right? When I was a child, I'm not going to say I had an imaginary friend, but if I had an imaginary friend named George, right? And I said, listen, let me introduce you to George. George, you know, say hi. Come on, be nice to George, right? You would know there's no George. I could tell, no, no, George, he's right here. You know, you're like, okay, George. You understand that my imaginary friend is not real. You understand and recognize crazy. And so what you have to to reason yourself to is to say, you know what? Somehow, hundreds of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people believed all of these lunatics and they bought it. So much so that by 70 AD, Christianity was such a threat within 40 to 50 years, was such a threat to the Roman Empire that Nero was trying to wipe them out and kill them all. And within 300 years, Christianity was a dominant religion of the known world. 
So you, so you have to believe that they're very convincing lunatics, brilliant, really, mass hallucination. But maybe you think like, that, that's probably not plausible. So maybe what it was was a spiritual resurrection, not a physical, a spiritual. They all saw Jesus spiritually risen, but not physically. But there's two problems with that. One is that they claimed to see him physically resurrected. They said that they ate with him. They put their fingers in his hands and in his side, and they walked with him. They did not claim spiritual. They claimed a physical, and the church has held that position ever since. And so really what happens is you kind of have to go right back to the hallucination thing, because you have to say, well, they claimed physical, but it was spiritual, so they were hallucinating that it was physical when in fact it was spiritual. So typically what happens as you work through these theories, you come to the last one, which is the main theory, and that's that the disciples stole the body. This is the position that has been held since the first Easter Sunday. In Matthew, Matthew talks about this. He says that a lot of people believe that they stole the body. See, the the Jews and the Romans knew that the apostles and the followers of Christ would probably be up to something, that they wanted to keep the movement alive, and so they would have put Roman guards there, and the Roman guards knew that if anything happened, they're going to die. And so you have to believe, then, that the disciples stole the body, that they overpowered the Roman guards, or the Roman guards fell asleep, even though they knew they were going to die, and they moved the stone away, and then they took Jesus' body, and they, they disregarded it. Maybe you can get there, right? Maybe you can say, okay, they, I, I could see that. But then you have to say, that every single one of them, except for one guy who was exiled, died for what they knew was a lie. See, people die for lies all the time, right? But how many people die, especially a group of people, a large group of people, how many people die for something that they know is a lie? If they stole the body, they know he didn't rise from the dead. How many people die for a lie knowing it? You can be convinced of something. But if you know it's a lie, would you die for it? You see, here's, here's the truth. The resurrection, resurrection from the dead is not reasonable and logical. It's not. It's unreasonable. It's illogical. Resurrection from the dead. But so is every other argument about what happened some 2,000 years ago that changed the course of the world. They're both, they're, those arguments are also unreasonable and they're illogical. So you're left with one choice, faith. Either faith that Jesus was in fact God who died for your sins and was buried and resurrected physically on the third day, miraculously, and appeared and changed the course of the world by his followers that went out believing that that was the truth because they saw him, or faith in that you don't know what happened, but certainly you don't think that he rose from the dead. But both positions require faith. See, for those of us in this room that believe in faith that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, today is not a day of reason. There are some really good arguments, right? There are some really good arguments for why Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. Really good arguments, reasonable, logical, and and logic and reason should be a part of your faith. But today is a day of wonder. It's a day of something wonderful that is to inspire wonder in you because it's miraculous. Eugene Peterson, a scholar and theologian, he says, it's not easy to convey a sense of wonder, let alone resurrection wonder to one another. 
It's very nature of wonder to catch us off guard, to circumvent expectations and assumptions. Wonder can't be packaged, and it can't be worked up. See, the miraculous in its very nature is meant to inspire wonder. You, you can't neatly package it. You can't have all of these little details that are perfectly fine-tuned to explain it because it's abnormal. It catches you off guard. And so what today is about as we celebrate the fact that we believe in faith that Jesus Christ was in fact alive, that he came forth from the grave physically, it's to move you by wonder, not by reasonable arguments, but by wonder. Have you ever been at the beach during sunset? Sat at the beach, maybe you drive over to the west coast, you sit at the beach, right? You put your toes in the sand. You're watching as the sun is sinking into the horizon and the colors are, are spreading out all over the sky and you see the sun set right into the earth. It just descends right below the earth. And the warmth goes away, right? The warmth is gone and, and, and your skin kind of stands up a little bit. It gets cold outside. Cold for us, right? And it's beautiful, but it happens like that, right? As it sinks and then it's dark. And it feels different when it's dark for some reason. And so what you do is, you know, you get back in your car and, and you drive home. And when you get home, you know, you, you begin to relax because you had a two-hour drive and you drove Alligator Alley, which is the worst road of all time. And you get home and, and you're, you're sitting there and you feel, literally feel the strength leaving you, right? This is what happens every night. The strength is leaving you and you're having a hard time keeping your eyes open. And so you say, okay, it's time for bed. And so you turn the air down, you close the blinds. Maybe you have blackout blinds, right? So it's like really dark. You turn all the lights off, you get into the bed, you wrap yourself up in the bed, and then you close your eyes and something happens. It's not your choice, it just happens. You just go unconscious. Have you ever thought about that? How does it happen? Right? You're laying there and then like, bam, you're gone. You didn't make that decision, it just happens. You go to sleep, you're unconscious, you're kind of like dead, right? You don't know what's happening, you're gone. And then in the morning, you wake up, maybe angry because you have an alarm. But even if there's no alarm, your body will just naturally wake up. It'll rise, right? And you get out of the bed and you turn the air up because you want to save some money on your power bill. And you take up your blinds or maybe you keep them down to keep the house cooler. And then you get ready for the day and, and you go out. Maybe you get up just enough to get to the beach for sunrise, right? So you go out and you want to see the sunrise. And so you're sitting out there and you're in the sand again and you see the sun do what? It ascends or it rises from the horizon. Where it went the night before, it rises from in the morning. And as it rises, the colors spread back across the sky and the warmth comes across and you feel it on your skin and it's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. You see, wonder moves you, especially resurrection wonder. Because think about what happens with the sun setting and the sun rising. The sun goes into the earth, right? It dies. It's buried as you watch it set below the horizon and in the morning, it, it rises out of the ground, out of the earth. See, nature speaks and reveals the reality and the wonder of the resurrection, death and resurrection. So do you. You go to bed every night and you get in your bed and all of a sudden, somehow, you go unconscious. 
You're, you're dead-like. And then in the morning, you wake up. And you rise. And you get out of bed. You don't know how it happens, but it happens. You see, human nature does the same thing. It reveals the reality and the beauty of resurrection wonder. And today is wonder directed at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was something miraculous. It was something unexpected. It was something that we can see written in nature and human nature, but we can't quite put our finger on it because it is in fact a miracle and it is in fact meant to inspire wonder. We begin to ask ourselves something like, why would God go to this length for me? Why, why would he be betrayed and ridiculed and mocked and tortured and, and killed and, and then three days later come forth from the grave? You see, Easter, for those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, it changes everything. Because our human nature is this. This is the, the world that we live in. You get what you deserve, Right? If you put in hard work and you produce good results, then you will be rewarded. If you perform well, then you're going to be rewarded with good things. And what happens? We take that to God, right? And so we we bring that to God. It's our same mentality. And we come to God and we say, okay, God, I want something from you, right? I want blessing. I want favor. I want your love. I want forgiveness. I want to know that I'm going to be with you when I die in heaven. I want all these things, whatever it is. And so I'm going to, to perform. I'm going to try to be really good and give you my goodness. I'm going to try to be obedient. I'm going to try to give you my obedience so that you're going to love me and that you're going to forgive me and you're going to give me favor and blessing and and heaven hopefully when I die. And so I'm going to really try to be religious and I'm going to really try to be good for you. See, striving to be good is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Obedience is not a bad thing. It's it's a good thing. But, But Easter changes everything because here's what Easter says to you and to me. God did something that you cannot do. Because he wants to give you something. He sent his only son to live a life that you couldn't. To be a substitutionary atonement on the cross for your sins. And he was buried and he rose from the dead. Because he wants to give you something. Quote on the screen and it's on your worship program from Andrew Murray. I love it. He says, a dead Christ I must do everything for. But a living Christ does everything for me. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ reveals something about Christianity. That it's not consumeristic. Maybe you were raised in that. Maybe that's what you brought in here tonight. That you think that Christianity says that if you can give God goodness and obedience, then you're going to get good things from God. Easter says, no, that's not true. Easter reveals to us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ reveals to us the gospel, the good news that God wants to give you something. And what does he want to give you? He wants to give you grace and he wants to give you forgiveness. He wants to give you his love and he wants to give you life by believing in something that you could never do and you don't deserve. That's the wonder of Easter. C.S. Lewis says that uh, it's kind of like a, a greenhouse. I've never been in a greenhouse. I don't even know where they are. But a greenhouse that... A greenhouse is not bright because its roof is bright. It's bright because the sun shines on it. And that's what the gospel says. 
That's what Easter reminds us, that, that we're not good for God and loved by God and forgiven by God and, and granted his love because we're really good and really obedient because we're not really good and we're not really obedient. We are granted God's love and his grace and his forgiveness because of the wonder of the resurrection, because of Christ's death and his resurrection that is given to us through faith. It is granted us through faith. And so if you're here tonight and you are a believer in the gospel and you have faith that that this story of Holy Week, the thing that sits beneath all the cultural activities of Easter, that you believe it's true, that you've said, you know what? Miraculous things are unreasonable, but so are all the arguments as well for what took place some 2,000 years ago. And I really do believe that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh who died for my sins and rose from the dead. Then I, I pray that when you watch the sunset and the sunrise and when you go to sleep and when you get out of bed in the morning, that you'll be reminded of God's love for you, that he has given to you. Not because you earned it or because you deserve it, but because he loves you. And if you walked in here thinking, you know what, I'm coming for the Easter service, but I, I, this is probably a myth. I first off want you to know that this is like a really safe church for you to be in because We've all been there. I have been there. I've worked through these things, and you can work through that and journey through faith and ask questions with us. But my prayer for you is that tonight you'd see a little glimpse of the wonder of God's love to you, because you're not here on accident. But that you would also, when the sun sets and the sun rises, when you go to bed and when you wake up in the morning, you begin to consider maybe it's not just beautiful and miraculous how that happens. But maybe there is truth in this story of Holy Week. Maybe Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. Because it is true that Easter is wonderful. It is full of wonder. Can you pray with me?